You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad you can join us. I hope you're having a good Thursday before the long weekend for many. If you're in Manitoba, though, man, it's tough. It's tough. Love the West. Love the West. Uh, Lived in Alberta for eight years. Family in Western Canada still, in Alberta. Um, I don't mind the winter. I really don't. I like to ski. Um, What I find very difficult, or what I found very difficult, was the late onset of spring. um, And the fact that summer and warm weather ends ends more quickly. I mean, it's a fabulous part of the country. Uh, The prairies, the west. Um, It's not as bad as they expected. The forecast in some parts of Manitoba was 80 centimeters of snow. Like, that's almost a meter. Like, take a look at, you know, it's almost waist high. It's not, that's not going to happen, they don't think. Around 10 to 15 so far um, in Manitoba. I've seen Jill Makashan out in the, in the midst of it for the second day. And what are your, I just wanted to open the show today on a bit of a lighter note. What are your spring the, the icy grip of winter refusing to let go stories if in if you're in a part of a country where it hits hard southern ontario you're you're not really qualified to kind of weigh in although i know it does happen in in a you know occasionally uh, i'm in ottawa we tend to get hit in april but it would be odd to get 50 centimeters of snow it's happened there's been a lot of snow before but text me at 7 10 10 what is the worst part about the harsh winter is it the winter itself like is february harder than the late onset of spring and the warmer weather or is it getting hit with it now the worst when i went to school in halifax it was punishing that year i won't tell you what year it was quite a while ago but it was just ice on the window, like no flowers yet. It was just messy and a ton of snow late into April in this particular year in Halifax. And I just found that kind of the worst part about it. So it's get, we're getting battered with it right now. They are still getting it, um, but it's it's not as bad as they expected. Here's Manitoba Transportation Minister... Doyle Panook, uh, despite all the snow, the risk of major flooding there, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. But the bright side about it, it's not supposed to melt until possibly Tuesday when we get actually get uh, a positive uh, temperatures, and it's going to be a slow melt. That's the best conditions that we can hope for. Slow melt. The upside is the slow melt. It's not going to warm up really quickly. And they know what they're talking about whenever it talks about they talk about flooding. Uh, here he is again on the hard winter that Manitobans have faced. This is the third most snowfall winter that we had uh, on record. I think you have to go back to 1923. We've, it's not just that we had snow, we had the winds. And the winds, I've never seen winds like this in the last in the ne- number of years. Wind, snow, and now there we see Jill out there, and it looks, it looks like mid-February. They've canceled a hockey game, uh, they've canceled flights. Um, they've canceled lots of stuff that, uh, normally they don't do in mid-April. 
There is hope coming, though. There is hope coming. It is going to warm up. Uh, Here's a text on the weather. We love the weather. The hardest part is when spring is like a high school relationship. It's on again, off again. Late start is fine, but come and stay. I hear you on that. I hear you on that. Boy, oh boy. Uh, The late start is is brutal. Um, Snow amount so far, Brandon 12, uh, Gimli 20 to 25, more than 30 centimeters plus, um, and the riding mountain area 30 to 40. That was the area they expected to get up to 50, maybe even 80 centimeters. So that's not going to happen. Um, So the flight schedules are up in the air if you're heading to Manitoba. So check your flights. Uh, And hopefully this will just be a couple of days and then they can get on with uh, spring in Manitoba, spring in Manitoba. On the on the show today, we're going to be talking about the change in Ukraine uh, and and, uh, what's happening on the ground there. Also, how Canada's commitment has changed. Uh, The Minister of Defense announcing Anita Nand announcing that uh, soldiers from Canada are going to um, are going to Poland to assist in getting Ukrainian refugees out the the um, the situation obviously there is quite chaotic, um, and it remains so. But uh, other nations and NATO nations are stepping in to help. Also, uh, in Ukraine, uh, in the war, uh, the sinking of the ship and the uh, takeout of a ship, a Russian ship, uh, by apparently by Ukrainian forces. A lot of people suggesting that this is again. A significant mark in the war, a telltale sign that things are not going as planned when it comes to Russia's invasion. And we're still at the same point, it seems. And again, I'm no expert here at all, but it's we seem, seem to be still at the point we were many weeks ago where I don't know what Russia has to show for this. I don't know what Russia has to be able to take home and say, we have achieved this. Clearly they believed that it was going to be much quicker than it, than it has been. And, um, there is some confusion about what exactly is happening on the ground. And often, uh, truth is the first thing to go in war, but a, a truth is hardening in that this is certainly, it doesn't appear that there's a lot of evidence that this is going Russia's way, or at least the way Russia expected it to go. Scott Reed's also going to join us in a few moments. Uh, CTV's uh, political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Evan did an interview earlier this week, a panel discussion uh, with uh, Jenny Byrne and Tasha Gridian from uh, both camps, from the um, uh, one from the Charest camp, one from the Polyev camp. And it was extraordinary. Don Martin wrote a column about it, the fact that normally... In political talk shows, the gloves come off occasionally for the main participants, but rarely like this. And I think it's fair to say on this campaign that we are seeing um, an extraordinary amount of vitriol and um, firepower going at these two camps, uh, going at each other. I think it underscores how much is at stake for the politi- for the for the political fortunes of the Conservative Party, um, and you know, in years past, mid Trudeau or after 2015, I don't think the fight would be as intense as it is now, largely because their chances are much better next time. 
whoever wins, regardless of who wins. They know that they believe they have a real shot this time of forming government. And this is a very, very significant decision they're making, which way the party is going. So we're going to talk to Scott about whether crowds have been overblown and whether all of this vitriol between the two camps is just noise when we're voting in September. Is it the lead up to the memberships? What is it? Or is it the fact that so much is on the line for this party at this particular time? Uh, In addition to that, uh, we're also going to uh, speak more to uh, Scott about the uh, about the problems with uh, uh, with the with the race and what the conservatives are facing. And um, he has some interesting inside insight into that and why it has been uh, so intense uh, between these two be- between these two leading camps and perhaps why we're not paying as much attention to the other camps. There's the music. We're going to be back in just a few moments. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here on this Thursday. Uh, as always, we're trying to sort through what is real and what is not on the ground in Ukraine. It's very, very difficult. Um, there is a Russian warship that it appears has been struck. Uh, the Ukrainians claiming it has made a they've made a significant hit against the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Um, they claim it's been hit by missiles. Um, Russia is saying something different. Um, trying to sort through this and other things on the ground and on the water. Vice Admiral Mark Norman, a retired uh, Royal Canadian Navy officer and former uh, Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, joins us now. Uh, Vice Admiral, when you see these kinds of reports as a civilian, I always say, well, uh, it's pretty clear what happened here. Uh, based on what you know, and I appreciate you're not right there, um, what what stands out for you? What what do you think this says, if anything, about the um, the fighting that's going on there now? Well, good afternoon, Graham. Yeah, a couple of things. I think, first of all, uh, my reaction is that uh, irrespective of what may have exactly happened, and we come back to that in a minute, um, this is a significant event, um, and, uh, you know, this is, as you described in your intro, um, a major warship, extremely capable, very large, very robust defensive capabilities, um, and even um, if the best-case scenario is as described by the Russians that has been lost to fire and explosion and abandoned, that in and of itself uh, is a significant admission of, um, I would say, professional competency issues um, on board the ship, and uh, it's a real uh, embarrassment to the Russian armed forces. Even in of a best-case scenario for them, if, if, yeah, if what they're saying is true, which is highly suspect, um, even right. in a best-case scenario, it's still very bad. I mean, obviously, you know, fire on a ship is a, is a, is a major problem, but, um, you know, crews are trained uh, to um, basically fight the fire and save the ship, and this is an admission of the fact that the ship was unsavable, um, which which is very significant. And given 
the iconic nature of this particular vessel and what it means both uh, in terms of the Russian forces and what it means to the Ukrainians, um, this is a significant event, yes. How important is that for both sides, a significant ship being taken out or having a fire and not being able to operate? Well, I think it it has a couple of different meanings uh, for the two different sides. I mean, first of all, um, if if we accept the Ukrainian version um, of the events, and, and for what it's worth, I'm leaning towards uh, the Ukrainian version, um, then that means that, um, like we're seeing on the ground, um, major pieces of equipment are basically being um, taken out of service um, by uh, relatively lower cost uh, and simpler technology. I mean, anti-ship missiles are not uh, simple, but um, when you compare the cost of two or three of them to the cost of a guided missile cruiser um, with 500 people on board, um, you can see a real asymmetry in the capability, like we're seeing with handheld um, anti-tank weapons taking out the tanks on the ground uh, in Ukraine. And as it relates to the Russians, um, this is an admission um, that uh, something has gone drastically wrong. Um, either they got they screwed up and got too close, and their defensive capabilities were not up to the necessary standard, and they therefore absorbed one, two, or potentially three missiles, which is bad. Um, or uh, they have an out-of-control fire and the explosion of a whole bunch of ammunition on board the ship, which is equally bad. So it doesn't look good for the Russians, either way. Shouldn't they be doing better than they are, given their reputation, the money they spend, and the size of their forces? Yeah, Graham, I think that's a really key observation. And certainly, you know, I've been on the show before and other places, and I've been, obviously, like everybody, I'm rooting for the Ukrainians, but I've I've been commenting uh, consistently that, you know, you can't underestimate the sheer mass and might uh, of the Russian capabilities. But what we're seeing over and over again are what I would describe as tactical and operational errors um, on the part of the Russian forces that are putting themselves in situations where they're basically playing right into the Ukrainians' hands. Um, and, and now we're seeing, we're seeing reactions and retribution, and, and that, is, that is sad and um, absolutely unacceptable, the kind of behavior that we're starting to see. But, uh, yeah, they should be doing better. Um, thankfully, they're not, mm. um, but I fear the reprisals are going to increase. And they're gonna, the Russians are going to concentrate their military force now And we're starting to see that in the eastern provinces. What tells you that this was not the plan? What what tells you that, um, like I I was saying earlier, that I I don't know what they have to show for what they've done other than death. Um, And and destruction. And destruction and and, and a a horribly um, weakened economy because of sanctions. Like if you, because of sanctions, if you're, if you're trying to spin this for Russia and for the Russian people, what can you point to um, without actually manipulating things? Is there anything tangible that they can say they've achieved here? Well, and that's where you need to look. It's a great question. And the answer is probably not. Um, but if you look at the the news and reporting and the propaganda basically coming out of Russia, you can see how they are, in fact, trying to spin things. And I think the concentration of effort uh, into the eastern uh, Donbass region and what we're seeing uh, playing out now in the last week or two 
um, is pointing to where they're going to concentrate their effort and how they're going to try and figure out some sort of um, uh, superficial victory uh, for the Russian forces in that region. Do you see an end in the midterm? Like, like I appreciate it. it's very difficult to predict. Uh, this is this is war and things shift, but w- w- I, what's the out here? It just looks it just looks so horrendous uh, from any angle here. Yeah, I mean you know um, predictions uh, consistently on this issue and others have been consistently wrong. Yeah, um, but uh, the you know I, I think I think the Russians are going to continue to. Um, do the kind of horrendous things that we're seeing. Um, and you see, our interpretation of victory and theirs may be different. Um, yeah. And how they, how they characterize um, the absence of um, defeat um, can be translated into a victory. It's not necessarily the same thing. I, you know, I think I think the Ukrainians are, are going to continue to push back. Yeah, they're going to take casualties. They may or may not have lost um, some uh, people to capture uh, based on the reports we're seeing. But fundamentally, um, you know, they they have advantages with respect to um, the the way they fight, their doctrine, their morale, um, the fact that they're on their own turf, so to speak. I mean, these are all huge advantages, and the West continues to support them. Um, so, but, you know, the Russians, they're brutal, um, and, and they're going to try and figure out how they can spin this, as you said in your last question. Uh, is this going to end? Yeah, at some point, um, but I'm not going to predict when or how or what that's going to look like. But there, there's only a few scenarios here, the way this is going to play out. Yeah. Very quickly, how significant Canadian soldiers going into Poland from your perspective? Well, I, I think it's great, um, you know, and, and I think it's a, an entirely appropriate uh, contribution. Um, you know, I'd like, I, I think, like most of us, we'd like to see a more significant contribution. But, you know, that what was announced today will be the result of the analysis that was done inside the D&D and the Armed Forces, and that's their best advice to the government. Um, I think we can and should do more, um, but this is this is. Uh, appropriate, and um, I, I, I support it. Former Vice Chief of the Defense Staff, Mark uh, Norman, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Graham. All right. Take care. And when we come back on the Evan Solomon Show, we've got Scott Reed on the other end talking about politics and the mess that is the conservative leadership race. We also are going to speak with that Canadian Jeopardy champ, seventh Jeopardy champ last night. She won again. We're going to talk to Matea Roach. And your texts and calls about real estate. After the rate hike, have things changed on the ground and in your bank account for you? The numbers tell a significant story no matter where you are in the country. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. Stay with us. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. This is called Overhyped or Underplayed with Scott Reed. We're going to get to Scott in just a moment, but political discussions for the last several days 
have been dominated by this exchange, a friend of Scott's, Jenny Byrne, running the Pierre Polyev campaign uh, versus Tasha Caridian on Evan's show on Power Play. She's on the charade side. We're going to play them back to back. This was not just partisan stuff. Uh, there is some underlying things going on here we want to talk to Scott about. Uh, let's listen in to Jenny Byrne and Tasha first. It's hard for me to understand why John Charest is even running for leader of the Conservative Party, because he seems to dislike uh, every member of the Conservative Party. You, you've got a, a party uh, that overwhelmingly supported the Freedom uh, Convoy. Uh, you have caucus members, including our interim leader, Candace Bergen. I'd like to know if Jean Charest thinks that she's not capable or uh, credible to run. Yes, you've got thousands of people. So did Maxime Bernier in the last election, and he got 5% of the vote. So, quite frankly, I think if you want an opening, look at what's happened with the NDP Liberal Coalition. It's given us an excellent opening on the center-right to pull in voters who feel now they have no home even with the Liberal Party and no home in a Conservative Party, though, that would veer as far right as you would take it. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Scott Reed, welcome to the program. Your friend Jenny Byrne going right at it with the charade campaign. What did you think uh, of it? Well, hey, great to talk to you, Grant. Yeah. Uh, what do I think of it? Well, it makes for awfully uh, sparky theater. Look, they Jenny is a good friend of mine, and Jenny is running a fantastic campaign for yes. Polyev. I happen to believe, you know, they're building a castle to all uh, that is uh, wrong and distressing in the world. Um, But, you know, as a practitioner, you can't look at what they're up to and not go, hey, uh, these people are to be taken seriously. This is butter to the edge as a campaign. So, um, you know, look, I, I... Jenny is a take no prisoners person. That's the way she plays. I've been on the receiving end of some of those conversations. Uh, She's got sharp elbows. Uh, Guess what? This is a leadership race, and that's what you're going to get. But 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 this is, I I will say, and I've listened to your podcast. I I listen to it regularly. Um, It's a great panel. And this, this, this was something different, I would argue. This was like going to, not just I'm going to defeat you, but if I win, you are nowhere near this party. Um, that's unusual this far out from a vote, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but that's, and I'm not just saying it was just her. I'm just, Tasha was going hard too. There's a tribal thing going on with the Polyev campaign and, and they're winning. So like Sheree's going to lose, you know, people have been, I've had this conversation with a thousand people, including, uh, Evan and others over the Mm -hmm. course of the past few months, people talk about it. Like this is like a, you know, uh, some kind of a classic struggle for the soul of the conservative party. It's not, it's over. That battle has been fought and lost. Um, Tasha, uh, can come on and be spirited and Jean Charest can call people and release videos. It's over. They are in a ditch with leaves over them. They're dead. Nobody's told them yet. They just don't know it. Like this is the, this party has made its choice. It wants to embrace grievance politics. It wants to embrace, uh, jagged edge, uh, populism. It wants to be that not only that, but it would be a mistake for people on my side of the political ledger to underestimate its efficacy, its appeal and its power. Um, look, Polyev and Jenny are upending Canadian politics. They're remaking the political landscape. And if people don't think that Pierre Polyev has a real shot of being prime minister in the next election, they're not paying close enough attention. This is for real. And the trick is that people are going to have to figure out how do you fight this guy without rewarding him? Because when you call him and his supporters wrong and stupid and deplorable, that actually feeds their fire. It doesn't put it out. Yeah. And the other thing it strikes me again, 
outside looking in, it feels bigger than Trudeau in 2015 at the tail end of that campaign. Now, I don't know if it's true. I don't, I don't know what, what all those crowds mean, but like they were, they were pulling like in London at one o'clock on a Monday, hundreds of people like that. You can't ignore that either side. You can't just dismiss it and say, well, they're this or they're that. I mean, that's, that's not easy to do in a leadership campaign, let alone an election campaign to get that kind of, that kind of pull. Hey, to quote Dylan, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Uh, <laughs> these are big crowds, right? And it's telling you something. Now, does that necessarily mean that it, uh, you know, it's representative of how the Canadian population on 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 balance will will vote? Not necessarily. But here's something that I think is really important for folks to understand. I go back to this line about deplorables. Mm-hmm. One of the issues is we're all deplorables in the sense that Hillary Clinton called the supporters of Donald Trump, called those that were willing to hitch their harness to, uh, you know, to populism, called them all deplorables. But Really, what one of the more fundamental, you can talk about socioeconomic distress and pandemic and, you know, all these things that come together and form this kind of bully base of where political sentiment and frustration and anger is right now. But on top of all that, there's a fundamental appeal happening here from the Polyev campaign, which is there are people that are trying to put you down. There are people who are putting you down. And you know what? You you don't have to be economically threatened to feel that way. That's a cultural thing. And almost all of us feel that way. I work for prime minister. I work for premiers. I work for top CEOs. I feel that way. I am by any definition of uh, somebody who has been very privileged. I feel that way. I feel pissed off and that people have been putting me down. That is such a, such a universal appeal. That's part of its resonance. And you know, we can talk about overhyped and underplayed. You can't underplay it enough. This thing is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And if liberals don't figure out how to fight it, they're going to find themselves crunched by it. Did they get it? Do you have any sure idea? Yeah. You see a kind of a, a tone of defensiveness from them these days, to be honest, right? You know, like, ah, no, we're taking it seriously. We get it. We recognize that. Um, but are they sitting in a laboratory somewhere unbeknownst to us and saying, all right, how do we actually devise um, the counter to this? How do we devise a counter to it that doesn't smack of smugness and superiority? I don't know. I haven't seen much evidence of it. I take... One five-minute video on housing from Pierre Polyev. I compare it to the federal budget with all the resources of the federal government and the muscle that you can summon uh, with the state, so to speak. And I would say that there was a more compelling, more persuasive, and more publicly resonant message out of Pierre's five-minute video than the days of budget coverage and budget events. And, you know, that tells you, one, the way they're doing it isn't working as good as it needs to, and two, what they're doing isn't working as good as it needs to. So I'd be fixing it now because uh, come next election, it may be too late. He, he wins uh, on that score. Like, let's stay with that. Budget versus on-camera stand-up in front of the multi-million dollar house that's a shack. And it doesn't matter because he's hitting the, all those emotions that are so powerful, the frustration, the, the craziness of the housing market, um, tapping into all that anxiety. But his answer is, it's the gatekeepers in Vancouver City Hall. It's their fault, which is utter nonsense, right? Like, it's, like, it's not that simple, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because he is resonating with people's frustrations, and that's more important right now for him and for the campaign and ultimately for conservatives than anything else. Right. But 
opponents of that argument get themselves nowhere by saying right. it's not true. It's not that simple. Yeah, yeah. That's a dumbification of it. And frankly, it's not even a fair characterization of the entire argument. It was actually loaded with policy specifics. It was quite, it was, it's, I mean, this isn't Donald Trump just no, like, no, you no. know, talking like a dummy. Fair I point. mean, yeah. there's this, there's, it's sculpted and clarified and yes, it's targeted and in many respects cynical, but it's, um, it's also skilled and sophisticated in its very own right. The final thing that I would argue is, um, and this is really, really, really important. Um, and me and my buddy David have talked about this on the, on the podcast, it presents you with a villain, a problem and a solution and a villain who stands between the problem you have and the solution you seek. And you know what? That's just good storytelling and good storytelling is fundamental to good politics and good politics is fundamental to getting elected and being in government it's over for sure you're you're going to the bank with that it's been over for sure since this thing started i've been saying that since the get-go so if i'm humiliated fine i'll come on and i will uh you can listen to me eat a shoe but i'm not going to be humiliated um <laughs> okay Five thousand people show up at a rally. How many? How many new memberships do you think they get? How many yeah. donations do you get? How Lots. many? How, how much data do you think they acquire? Like a lot, a lot. Scott Reed, appreciate this. Thanks. Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Great to have you with us. Uh, welcome back to the show. If you're a Jeopardy fan, my co-host in Ottawa, Patricia Bull, watches every single night and some very exciting developments are happening if you're a Canadian and you're watching Jeopardy. Matea Roach has won seven times, uh, winning so far $168,000. And for anybody who's kind of a periphery fan of this game show, people who are into Jeopardy are really into Jeopardy. And when something like this happens, everybody gets very, very engaged. We are thrilled to have Matea Roach on the phone with us. Matea, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much. How are you? I'm great. How exciting is this for you? Uh, it's pretty exciting, honestly. I, it's a bit of a whirlwind. I feel a little bit like it's hard to process even as it's happening, but... Yeah, it's been great. You know, obviously I knew for a while that this was going to happen, so it's been really amazing to see people's reactions and to have everybody be excited along with me. Right, and we can't obviously, th- these are these are pre-taped in blocks, uh, and then they run, and you're restricted in terms of what you can say about what's going to happen. Um, but based on what's already been broadcast, um, did you ever expect to get this far? When you, When you go into something as high pressure as Jeopardy!, uh, what's your mindset? Is it is it one show at a time? Yeah, I think you absolutely have to take it one game at a time. Um, when I initially got the call to appear on the show, I assumed I wasn't going to win a single game. I think that for a returning champion, I'd say the odds of winning a game or statistically what tends to happen is the returning champion wins about 50% of the time, which means you know the odds for either other competitor, it seems like it's 25%. Obviously, that's like a very basic understanding of how sure. stats work. But I figured, you know, like it's really not a given that I'm going to walk away winning even one game. So to have it happen once and then twice and now seven times, uh, I absolutely didn't expect to have the run of good luck that I had to be able to make something like this happen. How long have you been watching the show? Because it seems to me most contestants are 
as rabidly fanatic about this show as so many fans are? Um, well, I think the show has been in my life probably for a long time. I remember watching Wheel of Fortune from the age of about like two or three and Jeopardy being its sister show and typically airing right after. Uh, I would have been watching that likely from probably not the same age, but definitely from childhood. So um, I've watched it on and off for certainly at least the past 15 years, maybe even longer than that. Um, with a bit of a break, you know, not living at my parents' house, not having cable, I don't watch it as much as I used to when I was in high school, say. But yeah, right. I've been watching it a long time. You grew up in Nova Scotia, you're at U of T, um, or you, you've graduated now, right, from U of T? Uh, yeah, yeah, I graduated in 2020. Okay, and um, w- w- tell me about what's the biggest surprise when you went to the studio. Like, what what surprised you most about participating in it? Um, I think there's, you know, some sort of superficial surprises in terms of seeing the visuals on the set, you know, and how things are laid out. The board is really big, bigger than you'd expect it to be, but it's also far away from you. Uh, You know, you're used to watching it at the proximity of the TV in your living room, right? So in the studio, it's not that nearby. Yeah. Uh, So things like that were surprising. The thing that I was the most blown away by, and not that I expected it necessarily to be not like this, but to experience it was really overwhelming was just the positive energy that there was on set, both from the other contestants and also from everybody working at the show. Um, I think the people working at Jeopardy! recognize how special it is for the contestants to get this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and tape. And so they really do go out of their way to make sure that everybody is able to play their best and everyone feels comfortable and just have an enjoyable time, regardless of whether they win or lose. Um, And then I found the environment among contestants was incredibly mutually supportive, which was really nice because you don't always get that in a sort of high-stakes, high-pressure environment. No. Your friends and family obviously watching very, very closely. How excited are they for you? They're pretty excited, yeah. (laughs) And, like, the vast majority of people, I was only able to tell, essentially, people that are close enough to me that if it were not COVID and I had been able to bring them to the studio, like, you know, they would have probably come and seen the games, right? So I was able to tell my parents, I was able to tell a couple of close friends, but the majority of my friends and family had no idea that there was going to be this long run. And so it's been awesome getting updates from people after each game airs, you know, saying, oh, that was a nail-biter, gee, you curb-stomped it, depending on what game, because I've certainly had a lot of variety in the games that have aired. Can you get ready for Jeopardy? Or once you're accepted and you're at a certain level, all the preparation has already been done? Oh, well, I would not say that the preparation had been done until the point that I got the call, because I think that in a, in a way I was inadvertently preparing, you know, my whole life, right? Just always picking up different pieces of information and everything that you learn is a potential tool that is, might help you on the show. Um, but no, there's absolutely things, even if you're somebody who's a huge trivia buff, who maybe played competitively at the high school or university level, knows a lot of stuff, there's always things that you can do to improve, right? So my main thing that I wanted to study up on before I went was, not so much just learning pure subject matter, but learning a bit about the strategy of the game, how to wager in different situations, um, and then also getting a feel for how the clues are written, because there's often hints in the clue that are embedded to try and point you in the right direction. Um, you said early on that you're going to pay off your student debts. Uh, I'm assuming you're north of that now. Do you have plans for the winnings yet, or...? What do you, what, what are your plans? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm well north of it. Like, I was accurate in the first game. I earned enough uh, in that first game to pay off the balance of what I have remaining, which is amazing. So, yeah, as I continued racking up money, I was like, geez, this is more money than I've seen in my whole life. Like, I don't even really know. Um, I'm not somebody who's inclined to spend money frivolously. You know, I'm sure I'll 
you know, go on vacation. I might go to the record store a bit more often than I used to. But I want to invest most of the money, try and save up, uh, you know, to maybe look at buying property five, ten years down the line. Um, it's something that, you know, I, I think I'll really benefit from having this just sort of starter amount of money there as opposed to having to save up through work uh, to get that. Well, it's been a thrill to watch, and uh, we're all uh, we're not going to ask you what happens. I know you know, but you can't say. And uh, congratulations. It's been quite a run, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and folks will just have to tune in tonight to see if I can make it eight. Eight in a row. We'll see. That's Matea Roach. Thanks so much, Matea. All right, bye-bye. So exciting. Wow, wow. I'm, I, I'm not a massive Jeopardy fan, but you get caught up on this, and some of the questions that they get right... Um, and just the general base of knowledge is just impressive. The literacy of the candidates, the, uh, of the of the contestants, the literacy of people um, who have who uh, who who have made it that far and are that successful. Um, just uh, just thrilling to watch. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak about real estate and the rate hike, and get your texts and your reaction to whether it is. Changing your choices as a consumer. 71010 is our text line. Please give us a text. It's up 0.5 as of yesterday to 1%. That's raising interest rates. The potential of it going another full point and then some is very real. In fact, it's likely going to happen. We did a calculation yesterday in the newsroom. Per $100,000... Yesterday's hike is about $40 per $100,000. I mean, if you're carrying four or five hundred or $600,000 in mortgage and you're variable, you're going to feel that right away. So have things changed for you? Let us know at 7, 10, 10 on real estate and how crazy the market is. We've spent a lot of time talking about it. And has the game, has the situation changed for you no matter what city you're living in? We're also going to talk about Etsy and thousands of Etsy sellers striking over increased fees. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. We've spent a lot of time over the last several years, months, weeks, it seems, talking about real estate and how crazy things are in many of the markets, many of the cities across the country. Um, Even in smaller centers, around bigger centers, things have gone way, way up to the point where many people are simply priced out. Yesterday, um, partially because of the housing market, but also about overall inflation, of course, the Bank of Canada did what it said it was going to do, uh, raising interest rates by the largest increase in 20 years, but still low. Um, They've gone from 0.5% interest rate, overnight rate to 1%, a 0.5% increase. Um, part of our coverage yesterday was we, we spent our time talking about what does that actually boil down to for monthly costs 
if it's passed on directly to the homeowner right away. I appreciate locked-in rates on mortgages, and in fact, variable rates will be delayed, but inevitably, all rates will go up. If the increase is immediate, one of the benchmarks one of the experts in the field told us about was essentially a 0.5% increase roughly translates into about $40 per $100,000. So if, you're, if you've got a loan out, um, either a line of credit or, or a mortgage itself on a variable rate of $500,000, which is not out of the question for many people now, given the prices in the country, I mean, that alone yesterday, that move yesterday, that would add $200 per month if it was passed on right away. That's not nothing. The other problem here, not problem, but the other thing to be aware of is that this is not over and they are talking about getting back into the 2 to 25 to 3% range. So if you do that again, it, let's just say they go all the way to 2%, which I think they will. By that calculation of $40 per $100,000, you're now in the $600 a month range, which most people, regardless of income, would feel. So if people have been planning and they've been saying it over and over again, given the frenzy of the housing market, that you've got to plan for higher rates because they're coming back, they are coming back. And these still are historically low, even at, you know, 2%. And I appreciate the qualifying uh, that big banks are using, the qualifying rate is above what the prime is. You've got to qualify for a higher rate before they'll give you a mortgage. But many people base their lives on what they have to pay out the door. That's just a fact. Um, on pre-qualifying, for example, before the increase yesterday, if someone was approved for $750,000, they might only be able to afford a $650,000 uh borrow based on the interest rate hike yesterday. That has an immediate impact on the market. Some of your text is 7 10, 10, 7, 10, 10. Lots of people talking about this. You'll not feel it right away. Canadian variable mortgages are calculated with an above rate payment, so payments remain unchanged if it goes up a couple of points. Yeah, for now. That's right. That's right. And many people are locked in. They won't feel it until they renew. Hi, Graham. I'm concerned about the interest rate hike. I'm planning to sell this summer, but feel there may be fewer offers coming in and suspect a bidding war may be less likely. That's that's probably, well, that, I, I think it's going to cool down somewhat. I know my house will sell, but I may not come away with as much money. With moving to a rental home, rents may take some time to increase based on a landlord's mortgage. That's Chris from Long Sioux. Thanks for that, Chris. Yeah, all of that is true and all of that is fair. You may not get bidding wars and you may not get as much as you would have uh, received maybe even a month ago. But then again... But then again, you know, a year ago, you're way higher than you would have been even with this interest rate hike. The other thing to keep in mind, I've lived all over the country and in my lifetime, I'm 50, about to turn 52. And in my lifetime, I have never lost money on a home. I've moved four or five times. I've owned three or four homes, one rental. Anyway, I've always increased value. And I haven't made a, I haven't made a killing, but the reason I'm telling you all this is that is unusual in a cycle of real estate. Like 
I, I, um, you know, I was in high school in the 1980s and in, in the early 90s in university when there was a recession and people, people lost value on their homes. In the United States during the financial crisis, home values plummeted. And that didn't happen nearly as much, if at all, in Canada for a variety of reasons. So if that happens again here, and given our price points now, I don't see how some kind of a correction somewhere isn't coming. It's it's cold comfort for people who are buying now and who are buying at the top of the market. Um, it is a natural thing for the market to kind of ebb and flow, go up and down. And what we've been living in the last 25 years has been somewhat unnatural for a whole variety of reasons. Another hot area of the country, of course, Montreal. Michael's on the line from Montreal. Thanks for calling in, Michael. What do you think about the rate hikes? How has it affected um, your plans going forward? I need help buying homes for my kids. It's time to do the following to increase Canadian buying power. I suggest either way, Ottawa and the provinces do the following. Permit first-time homeowners to deduct the interest only on the mortgage up to 750000 That will permit them to pass a stress test, put down a deposit, and maintain the house thereafter. So I'm questioning if the interest rates are up because of inflation or because Canada carries too much debt and fear that credit rating agencies may be nipping at the door. That's a good thing to think about, Michael from Montreal. Thank you very much. Talking about the fact that, like the Americans, uh, there could be macro moves here, like writing off the interest. And what's really going on here? We've got some local texts in from Ottawa. Graham, rate increases are starting to worry me. My renewal is not until November of 2023. Lots of time for many more increases. Just sent a request to the bank to see if it is trying to renew now with penalties, if that will work. That's Rob from Rockland. Thanks so much. Hard to sympathize with people who panic bought a house for almost double the asking price. Um, The way toilet paper was at the beginning of the pandemic, they didn't properly research and realtors sure weren't going to give up their, their commissions to warn them. That's Chris in Ottawa. Um, I, yeah, I, I hear you on that, Chris, that, that this is, um, this is, uh, this feels and looks unnatural and, and, you know, some of the numbers have been absolutely crazy. Um, you're seeing, you're seeing people, you're seeing places like outside of Ottawa and outside of Toronto that were sleepy and affordable now becoming, you know, having multiple offers and exploding almost more than the core. Um, and that just doesn't seem like it's sustainable for the long term. Hi, Graham. I'm 27. Bought my first house in North Bay in February and locked in at a good rate right before the last two hikes. I'm glad I can sleep for the next five years. That's from Jake. Good for you, Jake. Uh, That is uh, well-timed by you. Well-timed by you. And uh, obviously, it's something to watch for other people who are... And keep in mind as well, we're at 1% overnight. You can still get an extraordinarily good rate. Like... If you get a mortgage at 3% or 3.5% over five years, it feels like you're getting a high rate. That's unbelievably good. <laughs> That's unbelievably good from a bank. Um, you know, my I think my first mortgage in the mid-90s, I was happy with seven. You know, and I know it's all relative. The, the economy was different then. But 
um, you know, the difference between, oh, no, I only got one point, I, I got 2.5 instead of 1.9, I appreciate it. it. It means higher costs and everything counts. But even even those rates, the higher rates, are extraordinarily good. Quickly, let's go to Joe from Windsor on the line. Joe, go ahead. Quick, quick uh, update. Three-bedroom, underpin basement, separate garage. Back in 2000, we spent uh, 72040 now they tell me I can get roughly round off numbers five hundred thousand for the property. You bought seventy. Uh, um, is it? Say again. What was your purchase price? He bought seventy-two thousand. I think he said. Incredible. Back in a moment. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Great to be with you. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan. I hope you're having a good Thursday and heading into a long weekend for many people. Um, I'm not a crafter. I'm not a uh, person who goes to uh, um, little nooks and crannies, small places, and looks for handmade things. Uh, I have, and I do occasionally, but it's not something I constantly do, but I know about Etsy and Etsy serves, it's an online platform founded in 2005 and it sells, it helps people who make things and resell things, connect with people online for their unique products. And there's something happening with Etsy. They have jacked their rates. They've raised their rates. The company says they're doing this to invest to to help make it a better experience and all those things. Um, and the sellers on Etsy see something very, very different. They don't like what they see. And many of them are pausing what they're selling on the site. They're calling it a, a vacation or a pause or a strike, whatever you want to call it, um, in frustration over the fees. Uh, Christy Cassidy is a seamstress and a seller from Rhode Island. She started all of this and she joins us online. Hi, Christy. Hi. What is it about this particular fee increase that has upset so many people? It's less about this particular fee increase and more that it's the final straw uh, in a long line of platform changes that have just been horrible for our businesses. How so? Um, So it's a bunch of them, but like, for example, there's a 12% fee that's tacked on at random on top of all other fees. There was another fee increase only four years ago where they brought the fee from 3.5% up to 5%. And then it's going up again to 6.5%. And we also pay separately for payment processing. We pay listing fees. It's, it's, they've done a lot to increase our fees over your pie, the last four years. Your pie is getting smaller and you don't like where this is heading or the justification for it. Yes. Yes. That, that describes it perfectly. <laughs> um, what has the reaction been like? You've got thousands of people who are actually, I, I'm sure they're, they've, they've noticed this given the numbers of people who are participating. Uh, are you saying you're sure Etsy has noticed Yes, it? yes. This is uh, not just a smattering of people, right? You've got a, quite a few oh, thousand yes. people. Oh, yes, most definitely. Yeah, Etsy has definitely noticed it. The only reaction that we've gotten from them is a statement issued to the media. We did try to reach out, but they're not responding to us. Mm. 
What do you want to achieve with this? Um, well, with this first action, what we wanted to do was get Etsy's attention and just get as many people as possible on our side. We're planning to form whatever the equivalent it would be for an Etsy sellers union. And our next action will be the first thing that we decide together. Okay. And when you say like, are you actually, you couldn't form a union, could you? Um, well, that's what we're actually starting to research. It's like, from what I'm seeing, there are, uh, unions of like, uh, various types, like there's gig workers have formed unions before. And there's, there's like guilds that are part of, of AFL CIO, but like, we're still researching, we're still trying to figure it out. But that's why I say the equivalent of a union, because I don't actually know what to call it. Um, tell me about what it is that, why, why is this so important, this platform for what you do? Well, Etsy has a de facto monopoly on the handmade market. I mean, whenever your average person says, oh, I want something that's made by another person, they go to Etsy and it's kind of, it's the only game in town. So it's the game we have to play. And if you didn't have that, I mean, it opens up basically any people all over the world to you, whereas you wouldn't have that access. Yes. Yes, that is true. So. What about the notion, and I'm not, I'm not taking their side, but when they say, look, I mean, this is, this is our site, this is how the businesses run, w- what is your response to the notion that sometimes fees go up and that's, part of, that's the part of doing business that you just have to deal with as a business owner? Etsy, we gave Etsy record, record sales two years in a row. They, like, they doubled or more than doubled in 2020, went way up off of that in 2021. And I would like to know why Etsy has not invested in its own platform. It needs to charge us more money to continue, as they're saying. Yeah. Tell me a bit about what you sell personally, now that we have you on the line, and do a bit of advertising. (laughs) I make gothic Victorian wedding dresses and um, different types of costumes. Gothic Victorian wedding dresses. Wow. It's pretty, it's pretty unique and pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the, the site, I, I, I think I, I bought my wife some, some fingerless, uh, gloves that were, uh, that were handmade that were a uh, Merino wool that she specifically needed for the rink and she loved them. And it was one of these things where I'm like, that's how I discovered Etsy. I'd never, I'd never seen it before. I thought it was just, just a store. Um, you, you're still obviously a supporter of the of the of the app and the business, considering I, I'm assuming it's brought you some success. Well, I'm a huge supporter of what Etsy used to be. Mm. Um, the path that they're on right now, I do not support at all for obvious reasons. Do you think it's a corporatization of something that was unique? There, yes. I mean, they're trying to turn into Amazon. That's what this boils down to, really. Yeah. And you don't think you think that uh, that's not going to work? Oh no! No. What just happened? <laughs> oh, we still my have computer. you. Yeah. Can you hear me? My computer yes. just like went black. No, you're fine. Okay. We can we can still hear okay. you. Okay. We can still hear. Okay, you. you can still hear me. I'm is sorry. It, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. So, is it? What is the end game for all of the creators here? Like, what's the next step for you? Oh, I think we might have lost Christy. Yeah, you're you're cutting out. You're cutting um, out all of a okay. sudden. What on earth is going on? Oh, there it just appeared again. Okay. I 
do you know what the next step would be, Christy? Um, the, so the next step is we don't know yet. We've got to decide that among the group. We've basically, we've got a, we've got a lot more people with us than we did in the beginning, whenever we decided everything that we were going to do. And we want to make sure that all the people that are with us are still on board and, and move forward. I appreciate your call and uh, your time here and good luck with it. And we will continue to follow it. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Uh, that is, uh, Christy Cassidy, a seamstress and Etsy seller. Um, who does not like the fee increases, um, who believes that it's just not fair. Uh, we're getting some texts. Uh, Tom from Toronto. Etsy's a private business. You don't have to use their site. You can sell your Gothic Victorian dresses and costumes elsewhere if you think Etsy charges too much. Cost of doing business, you can't blame them for wanting to make money, just like you are. Fair enough. Thanks for that, Tom. And uh, you can't Get someone create, can't someone create another platform just like Etsy to give them a run for their overinflated money? People have very strong feelings about Etsy. Who knew? Who knew? Um, but it seems like she is getting a lot of response here. Uh, last count, 30,000 people uh, who, are, who are sellers uh, working on this saying they're, they're perhaps looking at a seller's union and looking to push back on this. When we come back on the Evan Solomon Show, we're going to speak with uh, Glenn McGregor, who is in court today. Pat King, the convoy organizer, is still in jail. He was um, engaged in a bail review for those who haven't been following this. Uh, he is one of the organizers of the convoy that took over Ottawa for three weeks uh, in, in February uh, and uh, was arrested on mischief charges and other charges. Um, a bit of an eventful couple of days in court. There is a publication ban. Glenn's limited in what he can say about what exactly went on, but we do know there are uh, new charges and Pat King remains behind bars. Other convoy organizers are out on bail and are going about their lives. Uh, Pat King took quite a long time to get a lawyer and has finally, it appears, settled on a lawyer, Um, but there are still some uh, challenges here and uh, Glenn will talk to us about the Freedom Convoy and what Pat King is facing. And also we're going to join uh, Dan Riskin, Riskin it all, the electric vehicle and range and what music has to do with it, if you can believe it. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on Thanks. the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks for being here, everybody. I'm Graham in for Evan Solomon. I hope you're having a good Thursday. Uh, Pat King is a convoy organizer who was heavily involved in the takeover of downtown Ottawa streets during the protest for several uh, weeks, of course, just uh, a few weeks ago in the middle of winter. Uh, he remains in the Innes Road Jail here in Ottawa. Um, he had a bail review hearing over the last couple of days, essentially arguing why, like other convoy leaders, he should be granted bail, and uh, the decision to not give him bail uh, was flawed. Glenn McGregor from CTV's uh, National News Bureau has been following this, was in court uh, over the last couple of days. He joins us now. Uh, Glenn, I know you're limited in what you can say because of the publication ban, but um, this is not a, uh, it it seems there are bumps along the road uh, all the time on this case. 
It sure does. I mean, this is one of the strangest criminal proceedings I've, I've seen or I've covered just because of all these little digressions and, and delays. I mean, King had problems arranging who his lawyer was going to be. He's, he's changed lawyers uh, a couple of times. And he's now spent more time in jail than anybody else uh, related to the convoy because the other organizers, people like Chris Barber, uh, Tamara Leach, uh, they've been released. Randy Hillier was released uh, on the same day that he was charged, uh, the, the uh, independent MPP. Uh, so, but King has been, uh, yes, yeah, still a guest of Her Majesty uh, out at the uh, the Holiday Innis, as it's called yeah. <laughs> locally here. Yeah. And so the last two days, uh, he is going through a bail review hearing. So he applied for bail back in February, shortly after he was arrested. And uh, the Justice of the Peace denied him uh, a release, saying that there was reason to believe, he found, that uh, King was likely to re-offend. That is, he was likely to keep doing some of the things that got him charged in the first place. And that is encouraging people uh, to break the law by attending uh, the protest. Uh, so that hearing, yes, as you know, has been covered by a publication ban. And I should say these are kind of standard in bail hearings and also pretrials. Uh, the idea is that you don't want to uh, uh, prejudice anybody who could be potentially a juror in the case right. um, by having them hear evidence that comes out at the bail hearing. And there are different evidentiary uh, rules at a, a bail hearing. The, the, the standard is looser. The Crown can pr- pr- uh, present evidence at a bail hearing that it, they may not be able Able to present at the actual criminal trial. So for that reason, uh, most and most of the time, these things are subject to a publication ban. The convoy cases, uh, Ms. Leach, um, Mr. Barber, they've been unusual in that they haven't asked, the lawyers haven't asked for publication bans. So, uh, so we can't really talk about what's uh, happened um, it, 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 actually during the hearing and the evidence that was presented there. But I can I can talk about two very um, sudden, abrupt adjournments. Yes. So yesterday's hearing, um, the hearing was underway, and uh, Mr. King's new lawyer is named David Goodman. He's a well-regarded criminal defense lawyer from Toronto, and he was participating via Zoom. So everybody was in the courtroom. Uh, but uh, Mr. Goodman was connected, uh, and he appeared on a television monitor, and his voice could be heard through the courtroom audio system. Well, suddenly, we heard this strange robotic voice fill the courtroom, um, very threatening tone saying, your computer has been seized, don't attempt to turn it off or reboot it, we've locked down your computer. And Mr. Goodman told the court, interjected to say that a message had come up on his computer screen saying it had been frozen, so it looked very much uh, like he had been subject to a malware or ransomware attack. Mm. We've heard about these sometimes involving public utilities, and, and we've heard about um, you know, uh, city governments that have had to, to pay out money because their computer files have been locked down by hackers, many of them in, in Russia and Asia. Uh, and it looks like that is what happened in this case. So uh, the judge had no choice to say, okay, we're going to adjourn this until you get this solved. Uh, because he would need, of course, to be connected uh, so he could hear what is uh, was being said uh, in, in his client's hearing, and also would, ha- would have to consult some of his records, which would presumably would be would been on his on his computer. So that was strange. I've never seen anything like that. This is this is kind of like uh, you know what criminal justice is, is like in the Zoom age when so many right. hearings are being conducted. Uh, uh, virtually, so they got the they got the computer resolved. That's why you're able to talk about it because the publication yeah. ban on that part of it was lifted. Yeah, exactly. So the publication ban was in place, sort of standard boilerplate thing. Uh, but the judge decided yesterday that, uh, hey, let's give the lawyer a break here. We're not going to report on this because 
and he could be getting, he could, you know, theoretically, he could be deluged by phone calls from clients who are freaked out that his computer had been hacked, right? Right. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, so this morning the judge decided to lift that and said we could report on this. Uh, and also, Mr. Goodman um, I told the court that there was, uh, the issue has been completely resolved and none of his files were corrupted. So good news there. But then we're about to get underway again uh, under the umbrella of the publication ban. But the Crown announced that uh, new charges, they decided new charges would be laid against Mr. King. An obstruction of justice charge of the kind he already faces. And additionally, a perjury charge. Uh, that's a serious uh, charge. It means that somebody has uh, misled the court uh, either through direct testimony uh, or uh, through a document that they swore to uh, under oath. Uh, and, 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 and swearing to something that is incorrect or false, that you know to be false, uh, is a criminal offense and uh, carries uh, pretty uh, serious penalties. So in addition to this long list of charges that Mr. King was already facing, going back to his original arrest, arrest in February, as well as new charges that have been added in the last few weeks that made him a co-defendant with another guy, uh, Tyson George Billings, Freedom George was his nickname, and right. he appeared in many of... Uh, King's uh, uh, Facebook Live videos and things like that. So they are now uh, charged together as co-defendants, but these new additional charges apply uh, so far only to King, and um, it's going to be another kind of legal headache for him. He's been in jail uh, for for a long time, 55 days now, uh, and um, doesn't seem like he's going to get any closer uh, to uh, – to, to his release, he's going to have to. They're gonna, his bail hearing is now going to have to be rescheduled. Right, and then he will have to go through additionally another bail hearing on these new separate on these charges. new charges. Are you? And appreciate the publication ban may restrict you. Are you able to? Do you know or are you able to say where the charges, the new charges, come from? Do we know if they are in relation to the actual hearing over the last two days? Or is it new evidence gathered during the convoy or during previous court appearances? Do we know? Uh, if I told you that, I would probably be in contempt of court. Got it. No problem. <laughs> I think I really want to do that. Yeah, understood. Understood. <laughs> yeah. So, Glenn, just before you go to, uh, how much of a factor have has uh, the Zoom hacks when, when, it's, when it's open to uh, public and now with this lawyer, how much of a factor has the very active online interest in the convoy generally been here? We don't know who's hacking or who's doing what, but it seems supporters of the convoy were often jumping in on Zoom calls in the court and jamming it up uh, even before this hearing. Yeah, yeah. Even I mean, we can't speak to what was involved. I mean, this could have just been, right. you know, it's kind of a scam thing that we've seen of kinds that have been reported uh, in the past. But definitely the fact that so many of these convoy cases have been um, heard through I mean, the bail hearings and first appearances and things like that have been heard through Zoom, which means anybody can log on and watch them if they have the Zoom codes. We've had multiple problems. We've had cases where the Zoom room gets overloaded because the capacity is limited. And so even the lawyers, in one case, the Justice of the Peace couldn't get into the, the, their own hearing that they were presiding over because there was such enormous interest in it and people across the country were participating. Uh, totally unusual because in the before times, these kinds of cases, maybe a, a, a couple of reporters might sort of waft down to the courtroom on Elgin Street and go in and listen. Uh, but now, because anybody can get in, yeah, we're seeing how much interest there are. Some of them have, have actively broken the rules. You are not allowed to take pictures of these Zoom hearings. You can't post them. Um, even outside the publication bans, you, just, you, can't, you can't transmit them. There was cases, and I was watching one, where I was watching one of the Zoom hearings, 
and a supporter of one of the defendants had set up a system in their home in Alberta or Saskatchewan, I can't recall which, where they had their phone pointed at their iPad that was playing the Zoom thing, and they were broadcasting it on the Facebook. They're streaming it. Effectively televising a court hearing. I mean, I don't know if it's they don't understand the rules uh, that are in Canada. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. Or they don't care, and they're just going to do what they want to do. Yeah, and if you're right. like, it's, it's a, the system is unfair and it's biased against them, and, and they just don't care about about what, judge, what some judge says about about the people that they support. Glenn McGregor, CTV National News. Appreciate this. Thanks so much. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. We're back in just a moment. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. That, of course, is The weekend. Blind by the Light. Why are we playing this? What is the connection to electric vehicles? Really, is there one? Dan Riskin's joining us now. I know that range and use of electricity and how far these cars can go uh, is a big factor in whether you buy one or not. Uh, tell me about this this music study and how it affects driving. This is neat. It's a study. Well, it's a press release from Kia and they had a real researcher do a study, but they haven't published this in a scientific journal. So everything's taken with a little grain of salt here, but it's a very cool result. And hopefully they'll follow up and actually publish it so that we can see the sample size and see what exactly they got for numbers. But what they did is they had people drive an electric vehicle, one of their electric vehicles, you'd be surprised to know, around a test track, about 30 kilometers. And then they played different track lists for them as they drove and they didn't give them any instructions and then as people drove the music maybe affected how aggressive they were or how calm they were or who knows and then uh, when they were done they looked at how much energy they used and they found differences if you're listening to beethoven ninth symphony you drive quite uh, calmly you don't accelerate and decelerate a lot so you don't use as much energy but there are a lot of pop songs that have a little more energy to them and you tend to use more energy and the song that they tested that ended up using the most energy was the one that you opened with that weekend song blinding lights wow so this is important because uh like like how if and i appreciate your your uh, caveats on this like this has not been studied it's a press release uh, it's not been peer reviewed it's it's a press release but you know, if anybody's ever late on a Friday night with a gas-powered car, crank some classic rock, oh, yeah. I would. It's it's hardly a shock that people drive differently uh, based no. on music, and that's essentially what they're trying to show and the direct correlation to how much juice they have left in the car. Yeah, it's very interesting. It'd be funny if your car was like, uh, look, just between you and me, uh, based on how much you know zap we got left yeah. and how far you need to go, I'm just going to change your set list here and, and put it on <laughs> something else. I mean. You know, they tried a limited number of songs. Uh, they found Adele, uh, her song, uh, I forget what the title of her song that they used was. Mm. Uh, oh, it was Hello. Okay. Uh, they, that was in the middle between Beethoven and The Weeknd. Um, but I have to think, like, you know, it's not that all classical music would keep you calm. If it had been the, the Lone Ranger theme song, the William Tell Overture, the, I remember very well one time being a little late for work, and that song came on, and I, I'm not saying I sped, but I'm, I did go 
I got to work. Uh, so, you know, the music does have an effect. And it's it's funny because when I saw the, the title of the press release, I was like, well, this that can't be true. I mean, it, you know, playing different music doesn't consume more energy or less energy. But of course, it's not the song itself. It's not the vibration of the speakers. It's the physiology of how it affects you. And, you know, it, it does open the door to a whole bunch of different uh, studies about how different types of music might affect how the safety of roads. Maybe during certain hours, it's much safer to have certain kinds of music. Or maybe when people get drowsy behind the wheel, it's better to have something that hypes them up a little bit. And of course, they did not test angry talk radio. No, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the honking. It yes. the amount you would use up your energy by slamming yeah. on the horn and yeah. fury and anger, I guess, would uh, would be another variable. It's neat stuff. I, I mean, I always, I, I, well, I'm, I'm frustrated that it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal because it seems really cool. And although they show that, you know, The weekend came out as using more energy than uh, Beethoven. You really have to know how much variability there is. So, you know, you got to repeat the experiment a bunch of times. And I'm sure that's, you know, on some drives, people are going to use more energy or less energy. But I have no doubt that they would get a significant result if they just ran the numbers. And I did reach out to the the press people at Kia, and they did not get back to me with any details about the statistical tests or anything like that. So for now, we'll just hold on to it. We'll keep watching it. And the the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is this, uh, because I am heavily reliant on my uh, GPS, whatever I do, wherever I go. I'm not, I'm not a map kind of a guy. Uh, Latitude and longitude getting replaced by something called what three words? What is going on here, Dan? I'm slightly obsessed with this. I just found out about it and I really, really like this idea. It's a new way of telling people a location on the earth. So right now you've got a couple options. You can use lat long. That's great. It's very specific. You can get very, very precise and you can, you know, because it's digital, you can put as many numbers after the decimal as you want. So you can get it right down to a dot on the map. But honestly, if somebody said, I live at 74 point something degrees West and you know, you're never going to be able to remember those numbers, let alone really use them. If somebody's texting it to you and you punch it in, fine. The other option is to use Google Maps where, you know, you might drop a pin or something like that. You can use a street address, but if I'm telling you where the beginning a hiking trail is or where I saw a bird the other day in the ravine, you're not going to be able to use those. What what three words does, It's that's the, the uh, website, what three words with the number three. Okay. Um, it's divided the entire planet up into a grid of three meter by three meter squares. And every square has a three names that are random words. So for example, uh, I happen to be talking to you from Edmonton. I'm visiting family here. And yeah. I went out and got a really good picture of a bison the other day at Elk Island Park. Now, if I want to tell you where I got that picture, I can give you GPS coordinates or I can tell you, go to Elk Island, take a right at the visitor center and go to the end of the road. No, I'll just tell you, dropped Captain Saucy. And if you put those three words into what three words, boom, it takes you exactly to that spot on the map. And three meters by three meters is, I mean, that's, it's like a parking spot size. So it's precise. Yeah. It's super precise, super easy to remember. Dropped Captain Saucy. No problem. I can hold that in my short-term memory while I'm driving somewhere. And the GPS systems of several car companies are now taking this into account. So now you can use, there are a whole bunch of different cars. Subaru just added it to theirs. Um, but there are a whole bunch of different ones that uh, you can use this for. So, uh, you know, if you want, if you drive Mitsubishi, Lotus, Lamborghini, I know you drive a Lamborghini, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Ford, uh, Jaguar, Land Rover, they're all integrating with this what three word system. So it's it's handy for for rural places, but it's also handy if like you're talking about a specific corner where you want to be picked up by your Uber, whatever it is. And I I really think it's a neat idea, and I really hope it takes on. And and how much? So these are major companies that have that have uh, added this. Does that mean that um, 
you know, Apple and all these other map, like uh, GPSing or all these other uh, map systems that we use uh, could be threatened by this or challenged by this? Yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, hopefully they'll integrate with it because you still need to have the GPS software that gets you there yes. or you still need to have the map that looks down on it. This is really just a, a a grid on the earth that has some maps built into it. But there's an app for it, which, you know, you can just say, where am I right now? And it'll tell you the three words of your location, uh, which is great. But, um, you know, the, the business is launching. It's getting some traction. Uh, but, you know, you've got ride hailing. You've got travel you've got government planning you could uh be very specific for emergency services hey we've got a fire at this specific grid point instead of giving an address and then having them get oriented when they get there um so there are lots of different applications that this could have and really just it's so quick and i like that the three words are things that you can hold in your memory it's the frustration is if i move over by you know three meters to the side all of a sudden i have three totally different words so there's yeah. no way that i can tell you three words and you're intuitively like oh yeah i kind of know where that is that's over in this area you lose that but what you gain is the ability to be very precise and very clear and to hold it in your memory in a way that doesn't require you to remember the decimal numbers what three words all right dan riskin appreciate you thank you thank you so much all right enjoy edmonton Fabulous part of the country. Um, before I leave you, we're, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, another text on housing. We're getting quite a few of them. Uh, perspective again. Bought my house in 1990. My first mortgage was 12%. If I take into account cost of living changes from then until now, the carrying costs were close to as much then as they are today. Interest rates went down. Prices went up. I'm Graham Richardson. Great to sit in for Evan Solomon. Thanks for being here, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.